On a Sunday evening in 1995, a couple of hundred Wheaton College students gathered in Old Pierce Chapel for an evening of prayer and worship. It was something they'd been doing every Sunday evening for most of that semester. This particular evening, they invited a couple of students from Howard Payne University in Texas to come and tell them about a revival that was happening there on that campus. So after the two students had told their story, they invited anyone in the crowd that evening to come to one of two microphones and share a word of testimony or repentance. Now this open mic time was a regular feature of the Sunday evening gathering, but on this Sunday evening something unusual happened. Immediately a young woman popped up and came to the first microphone and she tearfully and openly confessed to some sin in her life. Spontaneously a group of students nearby got up and surrounded her and began to pray for her. No sooner than that happened than another student came to the other microphone and he openly and tearfully confessed sin in his life and was immediately surrounded by a group of students praying for him. By this time a line had formed at the other mic and then both mics and soon there was a long line at each mic. One by one the students came forward and they confessed all kinds of sin, pornography and drunkenness and cheating on exams and, and gossip and jealousy and sexual immorality and all kinds of things. And each time they would be surrounded by someone in prayer. Pretty soon the lines were so long that students were standing in line for two and three hours waiting their turn at the microphone. It went all through the night and six in the morning it was still going strong. The chapel at that point decided they should take a break and get some rest and maybe come back the next evening, which they did at 6 p.m. in Pierce Chapel. Only now, word had spread across campus what was happening, so Pierce Chapel was packed that night. Again, the mics were opened, again the lines formed, and again the students came and confessed their sin. One student brought a stack of CDs that he felt were dishonoring to the Lord, and he left them there on the platform and challenged anyone to go back to their rooms and get anything that was hindering their spiritual life and bring it back. Hundreds of students left and came back with bags of booze and cigarettes and drugs and credit cards and clothes and whatever they thought was getting in the way of their relationship with God and they dumped it all there on the platform. Again, it went till 6 in the morning. Again, they took a break and again, Tuesday evening, they came back at 6 right through the night again. Same thing Wednesday night right through the night. Thursday morning, the administration decided it was time for these students to get back to class. <laughs> so they wrapped things up with a campus-wide worship service. But that wasn't the end of the revival. Other schools and universities heard what was happening. So they invited some Wheaton students to come to their schools and tell what happened. And so that's what they did. And every time they did, whether a state university or a Christian college campus, revival broke out. Open mics, lines of students, confession of sin, repentance, rededication, commitment to Christian ministry. All across the country. Right here at Gordon College, Eastern Nazarene, the same thing happened. Now, the students who lived through that back in the 90s, they're in their 40s now, but many of them will look back on the campus revivals of 1995 as a turning point in their spiritual journey and a moment in their lives when they experienced the power and presence of God's Holy Spirit. So again, we ask, as we have so many times in this series, how do we explain things like that? Why don't they happen more often? And more to the point, why do they happen so often on college campuses? Wheaton has experienced half a dozen or more of those kinds of revivals in its 150-year history, as have many other Christian colleges and schools. Why is that? Well, some of it certainly has to do with the passion and idealism of young people and their readiness to make a radical commitment to something they believe in. But a theologian and historian at Wheaton College, Timothy Larson, sees something else going on. 
He believes that revival happens more freely on a college campus because of the close-knit community life. He says that for revival to happen, you have to have sufficient cross-pollination within the community. It has to involve people talking to one another, and they have to be bumping up against each other in a way that can affect the whole community. He goes on to point out that other historic revivals have also taken place in close-knit communities, like the Welsh Revival of 1905 we talked about some weeks ago, or the Fulton Street Revival in Lower Manhattan, which we also talked about. He says, people have to be in each other's lives very thoroughly, and that dynamic is difficult to create in a modern city. So here we are this morning. Not only are we wrapping up our series on the Holy Spirit, but we're also kind of bringing to a close a year-long emphasis on community, getting closer all together. And it turns out that this convergence of spirit and community is quite powerful. Now, why is that? Why is the quality of our life together so important to the work of the spirit? And what can we do to create the kind of community in which this kind of revival can happen? Those are the questions we're going to go after this morning. Because as excited as we are for all that God has done and is doing in our lives and our church, we are boldly and humbly asking for more of His life and love and Spirit's power. So let's pay a visit to one of the most influential cities of the ancient world and one of the leading churches of the ancient world, a leading church that was in danger of losing its voice and its power. I'm talking about the Corinthian church and looking together at Paul's first letter to that church, the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, this letter was written by Paul to Christians living in this city. As you can see, it was a seaport city, so it was a commercial center in the ancient Roman Empire. And the ruins of that great city are still visible there today. Well, Paul spent considerable time there, and he founded a vibrant church that had very quickly became a leading church in the empire. The Corinthian church was known for, for great preaching and for vibrant worship and for the gifts of the Spirit and empowered membership and laity. It was the, the Willow Creek or the Hillsong Church of its day. But just a few years later, Paul got some disturbing reports about this church. So disturbing that he wrote this very pointed and lengthy letter in which he addresses some of these concerns. Let's jump into the letter in chapter 3. He writes, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. So, two years ago, Paul addressed the Galatians as you dear idiots, and here he calls the Corinthians a bunch of babies. Aren't you glad Paul's not your pastor, okay? I'm a little kinder than that. What's Paul so upset about? It turns out these believers who should have known better are trying to live the Christian life and do the work of the church in their own strength, in the natural, as we talked about a few weeks ago. That word translated worldly, it's a variation of the word, word fleshly. So Paul's saying that instead of relying on the Spirit of God, to 
live a life of faith and do the work of God in the world, they're relying on their own wits and wisdom and strength. And it's just not enough. They're, they're in the natural instead of the supernatural. And as we pointed out a couple of weeks ago, it is easy for us today to make the very same mistake. I mean, some of us have been following Christ for a long time. We know the drill. We know how to read our Bibles and pray and maybe even keep a journal. We know how to participate in the life of the church. We know how to sing the songs and hymns of the faith. We know how to be stewards of our gifts and put our offering the plate. We know how to volunteer to serve. We know how to share our faith in the public arena and invite friends to church. I mean, we, we can do this stuff in our sleep. I know for a fact that some of you can listen to sermons in your sleep. So I'm assuming you can do the rest of it too. I mean, who needs the Holy Spirit? You could say a similar thing about, about the church, Grace Chapel. I mean, we've, we've been here for over 70 years, this church. We've got a great history. We've got a remarkable set of ministries, spacious facilities, a gifted staff, a, an army of dedicated volunteers. I mean, we could run a pretty good church around here, even if the Spirit took a Sunday off. Now, we would never want to do that. We wouldn't choose to do that. But neither did the Corinthian church. They weren't trying to do church in their own strength. It just something had gone wrong. Now, it's not like the Galatian church we talked about a few weeks ago where they had theological misunderstandings about the Holy Spirit. No, they've got their theology, right? They have the Holy Spirit. They're just not living by the Spirit. Something has gone wrong. Something's getting in the way of the Spirit working in the life of this church. And in verse 3, we find out what it was. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Aren't you acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting like mere humans? See, it wasn't that the Corinthians were ignorant of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that they didn't want more of the Holy Spirit. It's that their life together was so dysfunctional, the Spirit could hardly operate in their midst. Paul gives a couple of examples. Instead of rejoicing in one another's spiritual gifts, they are jealous of each other's spiritual gifts. Some wanted to be leaders and others wanted to be teachers. Some wanted the spectacular gifts like speaking in tongues and doing signs and wonders. Apparently, none of them are vying for the gift of service or mercy. Instead of relying on the Spirit to lead them into truth, they are trying to reason and argue their way into a proper understanding of the resurrection. Instead of trusting and following Christ, they're aligning themselves with human leaders like Paul, like Apollos. The letter, goes, the letter goes on to describe other kinds of relational discord in the church. The believers are taking each other to court, suing each other, instead of settling things in a Christ-like manner. There's disagreement about the role of women and men in the church. Imagine that. When they had their potluck dinners, which they called the agape love feast, the people who got to the line first were filling their plates so high with food there was nothing left for the people at the end of the line, which, by the way, were typically lower-class people. No wonder Paul's so concerned. No wonder the, the Spirit is not able to flow freely in the life of this church. 
Remember now, they had the gifts. A few things were happening. But Paul is not impressed. He is afraid that this this spirit-empowered church is becoming a spirit-impaired church. And it wasn't for lack of awareness or desire. It was lack of community. So let's add one more item to our list of things we can do to make space for the Holy Spirit. Remember, we've said all along the way, you can't control the wind of God's Spirit. All you can do is set your sails. And so this spring, we've been learning how to set our sails, personally and collectively, for the Spirit to do good things. So we've talked about cultivating a spirit of expectancy, primarily through prayer. We've talked about yielded hearts. Are we ready to answer God's call to serve? An unashamed commitment to the name and gospel of Jesus Christ. Cleansed consciences as we clear away the clutter and debris of sin through confession and forgiveness. Missional living as the Spirit empowers us to go out into the world. And today we're learning that authentic community allows the Spirit to do His work in our midst. Now just so we don't miss the point, so they don't miss the point, Paul drives it home in verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Don't miss what Paul's saying here. He's not saying here that you as an individual are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now he will say that later and there's a truth to that. But the first truth, the first thing he wants us to understand is that the community is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You yourselves, he says, the local church is where God lives and acts and is available to the world. He's drawing on the temple imagery of Old Testament history. In the Jewish tradition, of course, the temple was the place God lived. It was was where God made himself available to the world and accessible to people. The temple was where anyone could go to find forgiveness and healing and provision and restoration and reconciliation. But now that Jesus has come and brought the temple to earth, now that his body has been established, the church, and the spirit lives through the church, now the church is the new meeting ground between God and people, the place people can come to find the gifts of God's spirit. But if that community of faith is not healthy, if it's not full of loving relationships, if it's not grace-filled, then the Spirit can't operate in that community. And it's no longer the temple. It's no longer a place where people can meet and find the good things of God. This whole concept of the local church as as a temple, as a place of safety and refuge and healing and salvation, hits very close to home this week. This week in which on Wednesday evening a gunman stepped into a church and killed nine people including the pastor there in South Carolina. In a New York Times piece the other day, an African-American woman from Charleston talks about the importance of the local church in the black community. She describes how it's a place of refuge and hope 
and healing and empowerment and has been for generations. She writes, The black church has always been the one place where we most often felt protected and nurtured. Not anymore, she says. The title of her piece is No Sanctuary in Charleston. Now, on the one hand, what happened in Charleston was the work of one depraved individual. But there's a deeper truth here. As long as 11 o'clock on Sunday morning or 7 p.m. on Wednesday evening, as long as those hours are the most segregated hours in America, none of our churches will be the sanctuaries they are meant to be. The racial divide that still exists in our country, that still is present even sometimes in the Christian community, it keeps our churches from becoming the places they were meant to be. Now, understandably, no one can stop a depraved person from barging into any church and doing something awful. But when the community, when the Christian community is not building bridges of relationship and unity and solidarity, it opens up these kinds of possibilities. Last month, the pastors from the Greater Things for Greater Boston Network got together for a, a day of conversation about the work of God here in our city. We were talking about revival in our city. The church is representative of all size and denomination and ethnicities. And one of the things we talked about was that one of the barriers to revival in our city is the continuing racial divide that exists among our churches. That until we really are thoroughly in each other's lives, until we are most, more closely connected and trusting each other, we can never experience this kind of fullness and freedom of the Holy Spirit. All this to say we're beginning to understand the convergence between spirit and community. And why the quality of our life together as a church, as a church in this city, why the quality of our life together is so important to the work of the Spirit. Because it seems as though the closer we are to each other, the more freely the Spirit can move among us. It turns out there are, there are three mistakes, three errors that people in churches tend to make about the Holy Spirit. We've touched on each of them in this series, but I want to review them as we finish up here. The first mistake is to be too intensely focused on the Holy Spirit. Remember, we said the Holy Spirit is shy. The Holy Spirit doesn't call attention to Himself. The ministry of the Spirit is to throw all the attention on Jesus, to make Christ great in our lives and in the church and in the world. So when too much attention gets focused on the Holy Spirit, something is out of whack. You, you might think of it this way. Um, the lights at Fenway Park enable you to, to watch the game. I mean, the lights are very important. Without those lights, you, you couldn't watch a game, at a night game at Fenway Park. The lights are really important. But if you're sitting at Fenway Park and you're admiring the lights instead of watching the game, something's gone wrong. Now, the way the Sox have been playing lately, you may have more fun watching the lights. I don't know. But I think we'd all agree... Something's gone wrong. So, in a much more lofty way, <laughs> if we're spending so much time thinking about the Holy Spirit that we lose sight of Christ, something has, is out of whack. 
So this has been a wonderful series. These eight weeks now, we've spent talking about the work of the Spirit. But I think the Spirit himself would say, it's time to move on. Get focused on Christ and his work in this world. The second error is to be too internally focused on the Holy Spirit. And we talked about this last week. Certainly the Holy Spirit comforts us and inspires us and uh, illumines the Scripture for us and meets us in worship. The Spirit does all kinds of wonderful things for us as a church, as believers. But remember, the Spirit is a missional Spirit. It was given to us so that we could go out into the world and do stuff in His name. So we want to stay outwardly focused. The third error is to be too individually focused on the Holy Spirit. Now it's true that each believer receives the Holy Spirit the moment we put our faith in Christ. He takes up residence in our hearts and that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But the Holy Spirit is not given for our personal possession. The Holy Spirit is given, first of all, to the community. The Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost when all the believers were together in one place and the Spirit fell. Paul is very clear. You yourselves, all y'all are God's people. God's temple, and the Spirit lives among you. So, let's look at one more verse, and then we'll just have some practical application. Later on in the letter, Paul writes at length about the Holy Spirit, all of chapter 12, all of chapter 14. Here's what he says in chapter 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. In the same way that a physical body is lifeless without the spirit of that person being present and active in that body, so the church, the body of Christ, is lifeless unless the spirit of Christ is present and active in that body. But in order for the Spirit to be present and active in that body, the parts of the body have to be healthy, connected, and functioning well together. And then life flows through the whole body and outside the body to life beyond. So as we've been saying, the closer we are to each other, the more freely the Spirit can work among us. So what does this convergence of Spirit and community mean for us practically? Two things. First of all, if you want to experience more of God's life and love and spirit, you need the church. You need to be connected and stay connected to a local community of believers. I came across a blog by a pastor recently, or maybe he's a former pastor, I can't really tell from his website, but it's a fairly well-read website. I encounter it in a variety of places. Now, he tries to be the voice of the next generation of Christ followers. He tries to speak to those on the margins of Christianity and church life. In this particular blog, he was speaking to Christians who have left the organized church for one reason or another. Disillusionment, disappointment, boredom, whatever it is, they've left. Instead of scolding them for leaving, instead of urging them to come back, he affirms them for leaving. He celebrates their initiative in going off to pursue a relationship with Christ on their own. On the golf course, around the breakfast table with the family, taking a walk in the woods. At one point he writes, the encouraging thing you need to hear today as you've made your exodus from the church building is that you haven't left God and you're as close to being the church as you ever were. 
Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong a thousand times. It may sound warm and wonderful and reassuring, but it's terrible theology and it's terrible pastoral advice. I didn't put his name up there because I don't want you to look him up, okay? <laughs> I don't want you reading his stuff. Paul just told us the church is a body made up of many believers. Other people, not like you, with gifts and passions and temperaments and personalities that are different from your own. And it's those many parts coming together that make a church. And when the Spirit takes up residence in that body, well then, that body can begin to do something. And we become the temple of God in which the work of God takes place. So yeah, you could make a case that you, you, know, you don't need a church building, you don't need services, you don't need orchestras and choirs and bands, you don't need programs, but you do need people. You need other followers of Christ who are different from you. I love Timothy Larson's uh, word. He talks about cross-pollination. That, that the church is, is like a garden full of all kinds of plants and flowers. And the pollen's got to blow freely and mix and match so that we become the beautiful field that God intends us to be. So we need each other to be the church. And so if you want to experience more of God's life and love and power, you can't do it on your own. You need the church, and the church needs you. The second thing this means on a practical level is that we want to continue pursuing authentic community life here at Grace. If we're not caring for each other, if we're not loving each other, if we're not serving one another, if we're not in each other's lives very thoroughly, if we're not bumping up against each other in meaningful ways, the Spirit can't flow freely among us. Recently I was talking with a woman from Grace who was describing a a, a, a well-known church in another city, a church she knows through a friend, and I have known of, known of the church as well. It's a once great church that has fallen into decline. And she described from her friend's perspective all the dissension in that church, the power struggles and the petty squabbles and the worship wars and the turf battles and all that goes on. And she's heartbroken for her friend and for the decline of that church that was once a great and leading church. And together we... Having heard that story, we gave thanks for Grace Chapel and for the remarkable unity and vitality this church has enjoyed for decades and decades. She's been here far longer than I have been. And we are grateful for that. But we can't take that for granted. We want to be stewards of that unity. And so that's why this year we've been thinking all year long about community life, about being all together in our teaching series, in our life communities, on each of our campuses and at One Church Sunday, we focused on getting closer, being in each other's lives together. In fact, it's, it's been such a great year that we thought it'd be nice just to kind of remind ourselves of all the good things God has done this past year. So we put together a three-minute year-in-review video. So let's just turn our attention to the screens for a moment, and I'll come back and wrap things up. We want to come together in new, fresh, closer ways to discover the joy and power of true community. Waking up knowing there's a reason All my dreams come alive 
refreshing as standing beneath the waterfall. We want it to be so bracing, so, so overpowering that we know we are in the midst of God's presence. We want more of God's life in us. We want more of his power at work through us, more love for one another. Make no mistake, while we are many campuses, many generations, many ethnicities, many, many, many people, we remain one church, going deeper, getting closer, reaching wider, one. really, really been a great year, and we have great gratitude to God for His goodness and to all of you who've made a part of it by your prayers and service and giving and activity and inviting and all that you do to make this place what it is. You need the church, and the church needs you, so thanks for all of that. So in the meantime, as we head into summer, a couple things you can do to make this a meaningful summer and stay connected. Chances are your schedule is going to change. You're going to take a break. You might do some traveling, take a break from your ministry. That's all good. Do that. But Stay connected. For your sake and ours, stay connected to your church. Really excited about this summer series beginning next week about worshiping together as a faith family, children, teenagers, everybody all together being enriched by each other's company. 
we're going to be looking at some children and teenagers in the Bible, looking at them as role models, not just for kids, but for all of us. I think you'll hear some stories you've probably never heard preached on before over the course of the next few weeks, so that's going to be fun. So stay connected this summer. If you're away for the weekend or you go off to the beach for the day, get home in time for GC at night, 5 o'clock. It's here every Sunday night. If uh, you're taking a break from your ministry on your campus, then go visit one of the other campuses and see what's happening in one of those other places. If you're traveling on vacation, find a local church, visit, and allow God to meet you in a new place and through new people. And then when you get home, watch the sermon online, okay? <laughs> so, and finally... Stay connected to your life community, to your circle of friends. Our life community leader on our final night together made sure we all had each other's contact information so we could invite each other over. Do that. Have some folks over. Throw a barbecue. Meet at the park. Meet at the beach. Let's stay in each other's lives, maybe in some fresh ways over the course of the summer. And let's be attentive to the many people who will be visiting with us over the summer. People who are new to the area, people who are looking for a new church home. If you see someone wander in the hallways, introduce yourselves. Make them sense the love of Christ here because the closer we are to each other, the more freely the Spirit can move among us. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful, indeed grateful, for a great, great year of worship, ministry, fellowship, care, growth, and impact. We don't have time to tell the stories, but we express our gratitude for all of it. And we humbly and boldly ask for more more of the same and more new things that you might want to do in and through us. So we present ourselves to you today, individually and collectively, with expectant spirits and yielded hearts and unashamed commitments and cleansed consciences and authentic relationships in order that you might do your good work in and through us for your glory, for the good of the world, and for our great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.